And I found some letters that George Washington wrote where he said the same thing. It's an experiment. That experiment existed then because even the liberals in Europe, you know, they're looking over here and they say it's a great idea in principle, but it'll never work. Uh, but we'll show them it does. And I'll tell you something. You know who will see whether that experiment works? It's you, my friend. It's that next generation and the one after that. My grandchildren and their children. They'll determine whether the experiment still works. And of course, I am an optimist and I'm pretty sure it will. Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Well, Jimmy, it finally happened. Uh, literally, I think, just about an hour before we recorded, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer officially announced he will be retiring from the bench. 28 years nearly after he joined the court in 1994. Yeah, Justice Breyer is stepping down at the end of the term upon nomination and confirmation of his successor, which Biden says he will name you know, before the end of February. Um, he is promised to appoint the first, or at least nominate, the first black female Supreme Court nominee. We're going to get into all that um, and what comes next in the confirmation battle over Breyer's retirement, along with a conf- uh, conversation with a, a former clerk of his, Carolyn Shapiro. But first, now let's just kind of digest um, all the news that's been going on. Obviously, this broke yesterday um, in, in various outlets that he would be stepping down at the end of the term. I don't know, did it surprise you that it came out this early before the end of the term? I'll be honest, the timing did surprise me. I, I, I was grateful for this breaking like mid-week. <laughs> right, not <laughs> on Friday at least. Late on Friday, uh, just personally. Um, but no, I, honestly, I was a little surprised at, at just the timing. I, I, we, I kind of figured, you know, he'd be retiring at the end of the term. And usually often, um, you know, you don't hear about those plans until the end of the term. Um, Jimmy, I know you've been really on top of this and reporting it out. Um, kind of give us a, a bit of a peek behind the scenes of what you've been hearing in terms of how this has gone down. Well, let's first look to kind of his public remarks about retirement. Um, You know, obviously several months ago, he gave a series of press interviews in which he said he was really agonizing with the decision of when to step down, but that he had ultimately decided to stay on for another year. He felt perfectly capable and competent, um, you know, on the bench. But at the same time, he stressed, you know, I do want to step down eventually and not actually die on the court he's 83 years old he's been on the court like i said for nearly three decades and he clearly um, was conscious of the recent example of justice ruth bader ginsburg who passed away on the eve of the presidential election thus giving you know president trump the opportunity to confirm amy coney barrett in her place the two obviously sharing completely distinct judicial philosophies so I think Breyer, it's fair to say, wanted to avoid you know a situation like that. He was obviously facing a ton of outside pressure from uh, progressives who were clamoring for his retirement to avoid that same situation. And you know, a source I spoke to says in in recent weeks he just felt that now was the the time was right, and he wanted to give you know the White House a a good runway, a good lead time on being able to nominate and confirm his successor, so that you know by the time the court comes around back um, in October uh, of this year for for next term, his successor will be in place on the court. So it won't have that same, There won't, he doesn't want there to be a vacancy um, on the court like we've seen 
in recent years, for instance, with the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, so that's a little bit of the context of where we find ourselves in this moment. Now, I think the, the big takeaway, though, is that, you know, this is not going to be a sea change on the Supreme Court. Um, you know, whoever, whomever Biden is able to replace him with is likely not going to shift the balance of the court one way or the other. There will still continue to be a six to three uh, conservative majority on the court. Um, unlike when the you know things flip flopped and seesawed uh, with Ginsburg's replacement by Barrett, um, but I think that's about the top line stuff there, uh, Natalie. But I think it's worth probably spending a couple minutes just chatting about what I think or who I think was one of the littler known justices among like the broader public, right? I mean, Breyer wasn't the one that, there was no Breyer mania, I guess, in the same way that there was Ginsburg mania. You didn't see him on a whole bunch of merch. He, he was definitely, I think, lower profile, right? I think it's maybe the better way to say it. He, he didn't quite have the fandom, as you mentioned, um, for his time on the bench, although he's been such a figurehead, uh, really, um, having served there nearly three decades. Yeah, and I think that's that's really a function of, you know, just his style on the bench. He was someone who kind of shirked flowery language in his opinions. He was not known for his, you know, blistering dissents or even his, like, landmark rulings. I mean, he was someone who overlapped most of his career with, um, you know, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was um, a, a senior associate justice to him and so would therefore have kind of first dibs on writing some of the really big uh, you know, monumental cases um, during both of their tenures on the court. But that's not to say that he didn't have any opinions of note. Um, he was someone who, even when he was writing on these big issues, tended to focus focus on, you know, how this decision would play out, you know, in the real world. What would the effects of the decision be on, you know, the public? I mean, an example of that was in Stenberg versus Carhartt, where in 2000 he wrote, um, the majority opinion striking down a Nebraska state law banning the use of a second trimester abortion procedure, really focusing on the effects of, that this law would have on abortion access for women. And that's something that we saw, you know, with some of his other abortion rulings in, in 2016. He wrote the whole woman's health versus Hellerstedt ruling striking down Texas laws, uh, you know, Texas's law requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at local hospitals. That's something he again wrote on, you know, just a few years later in the recent June medical decision. You know, that one was a plurality ruling, but again, he was really drilling down on the facts of the case. And this is something we're going to be exploring a little bit more later with with Sh- with uh, Carolyn Shapiro, our guest. But uh, Justice Breyer's legacy, it seems to me, is, you know, someone who really kind of focuses on the, the practical and, you know, making sure that the law is working in a functional way for the for the rest of society. So and I think that focus on the, you know, the real world effects of a decision that came across through some of his biggest dissents as well. You know, in 2015, perhaps his most famous dissent in the case Glossop versus Gross, you know, he 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 basically laid out and explained his thinking on why he believes that the death penalty is an unconstitutional violation of the 8th Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment just because of how the death penalty actually works in practice. He says there's serious unreliability, arbitrariness in application, and there's unconscionably long delays that undermine the death penalty's penological purpose. You know, we saw that in some of his other ones. There's a 2011 decision in AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, and that was a ruling basically against uh, consumer arbitration agreements um, that contain class action waivers. And so Breyer here is basically saying that, you know, this is going to 
require plaintiffs to give up class actions and pursue claims through individual arbitration. Who's going to go for that? So once again, you see that theme of, you know, what are the actual effects of a decision? How is this going to play out in the real world? Which, Natalie, I think you and I both know that's not always the theme of, you know, some of his questions at oral arguments. They have (laughs) very little to do with the actual uh, real world that we live in. Yeah, it's kind of interesting sometimes to compare his opinions to his oral argument style, Um, you know, and I I think while he perhaps did not have that RBG kind of profile with the with the general population large, I feel like Supreme Court watchers are going to miss his um, oral argument style. Um, He he was definitely known for kind of those long winded anecdotes. Um, We actually have a, a data team that kind of like parses through, you know, how much the justices talk through each argument. Um, and last term, uh, he he uh, had the most remarks that exceeded 200 words. Um, and I think that was really no surprise to anyone who regularly watches the bench. Yeah, I mean, if you're sitting there in court and Breyer like kind of clears his throat to ask a question, you know you're, you're going to just be settling in for a little while to just <laughs> to figure and out exactly what really he's going with. some of them are really fun, right? They are fun. I, I think I recall one where he talked about, I can't remember, maybe in the context of a Fourth Amendment case, an, a, a person owned an igloo with an air conditioning unit in it. I, I didn't see the reason why you would need, you know, refrigerated air in an igloo, but, you know, that's but that neither was here nor there. Fire. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was another one where a burglar was stealing Rodan, Rodan's, you know, the, the Thinker statue, which I think is like probably like a ton in weight, so I don't know that how realistic that one is either. I could go on and on basically about, you know, the different Briar hypotheticals. Suffice it to say that you never knew exactly what you were gonna get when he uh, would kind of his voice would come in over the microphone in the court in the courtroom. But um yeah, I, I definitely can say that I will miss some of his eccentric questioning styles at oral arguments as as maddening as it could pr- sometimes probably be for the advocate <laughs> who's just trying to get his point across or her point across. Yeah, he's definitely had obviously quite an impact. Um, And I think one of the best ways to really help us dig into what his legacy was is to talk to one of his former clerks. Yeah, that's right. So now we're going to bring onto the show Carolyn Shapiro, who is a professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, where she founded the Institute on the Supreme Court for the United States. And she clerked for Justice Breyer in the 1996 term. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. So we obviously just watched uh, moments ago Justice Breyer kind of announce his retirement um, at the end of the upcoming or at the end of this term. Kind of, what'd you make of his remarks? How are you feeling? Well, they're obviously uh, it's a little bittersweet uh, for me, but uh, it was a absolutely uh, perfect and classic uh, Breyer moment. He spoke really eloquently about his faith in the democratic experiment that is the United States and his belief that we can make it work. Um, But he at least, I would say, nodded to the fact that we are at a time with a lot of division. He quoted from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address uh, quite deliberately, um, I'm sure. So uh, I think it was, you know, it was both realistic and optimistic. Yeah, I feel like the rest of the country got a got a sense of what, you know, court watchers and his former clerks already knew about Justice Breyer. This kind of very professorial figure that could 
kind of go off strip, script occasionally. But um, before we dive into his legacy, I wanted to ask you about, you know, your experience actually working for Justice Breyer, um, who, you know, was pretty early into his high court tenure during the, during the 1996 term. So what were your first impressions of the justice? Well, clerking for Justice Breyer was, first of all, just an extraordinary privilege. Uh, and doing it so early in his tenure as a Supreme Court justice, it was his third term on the bench, was an especially big privilege because he was thinking very deliberately and very thoughtfully about how to be a justice. Uh, he didn't shoot from the hip about these kinds of things. He wanted to have a, a, a thought out approach to how he handled various different aspects of the job. He already had a lot of judicial philosophy, so it's not that he needed to start from scratch, but being a justice is different from being a judge. And he was uh, at, a, at an appeals court, and he was thinking about that quite uh, d- deliberately. And he thinks out loud. You may have gotten a little hint of that in his in his remarks today. He, he's one of these people who thinks by talking. And so we had a front row seat for that that process. Now, when I look back and I read some of his writings, I see some of the things we talked about, some of the things he was starting to think about have really gelled uh, during his career. You mentioned his kind of very thought out, deliberate process um, and, and, and those conversations. Do any um, one or two really stand out in your mind as just, you know, fond memories of, of your time clerking with him? Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm not really at liberty to talk about anything very substantive, but I can say that he would wander into the clerk's room. We, we sort of had two different rooms where the law clerks were, and one of them was right off of his chambers or his office in chambers, and the other was in another part of the building. And he'd just sort of wander in and start talking about whatever case he was thinking about in the moment. And sometimes the clerk working on that case might not actually be in the room. So we would sort of frantically call each other and say, you know, come down now. He's talking about your case. Um, but he would get really caught up in the moment. And, you know, that's that was he needed to try out his ideas. He needed to think about if this argument made sense. He needed to find out, um, ask his law clerk to do some more research on something. And so he would just get kind of carried away in the moment. Yeah. I, uh, one kind of question that I've always had about Justice Breyer from observing him, you know, in, in open court, asking some of his famous hypotheticals, do those just pop into his head at the moment? Are these things that he rehearses in chambers? Because some of them are pretty inventive, I guess I would say. I, Any I insight there? He, I don't know that he rehearses them because if he did, they might be a little shorter. Um, <laughs> they do tend to be long. Um, but he certainly has thought about the kinds of questions he wants to ask. And often he says that quite expressly uh, in his question. He says, this is what's bothering me. Right. Can you tell me? Uh, and now, you know, again, he's not the most uh, economical questioner, but he doesn't <laughs> hide the ball. Right. He tells the lawyers what he's troubled by. And sometimes that is a hypothetical, right? Like, well, if, I, if we agree with you about this, what's going to happen in the next case that's, you know, looks like something different, but 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 related. And, and so uh, he certainly thought about them, thinks about them before he takes the bench. When Justice Breyer departs, he'll have served on the bench for nearly 28 years. What do you think will be his biggest legacy? 
Well, you know, we can point to some specific opinions, uh, and I, I'll mention a couple in a minute, but I do just want to emphasize this idea of uh, the, the work of a democracy, the importance of having a, a responsive and effective democratic government really informed everything that he did. Uh, it was that was a, a core pr uh, principle in the way he approached his his work. So, in terms of opinions, one that actually I think is consistent with this vision is uh, his his dissent. Actually, in the parents involved case, unfortunately, it's a dissent. Um, that's a case involving the two school districts' desire to maintain some level of racial balance in their school in their public schools. They set up a bunch of different approaches to try to make that happen. Um, but one of the things that they did is to have as sort of as a last resort, um, they would take into account the race of a particular student who wanted, there was a lot of student choice. Um, the Supreme Court said that was unconstitutional and Justice Breyer profoundly disagreed. And he wrote a detailed and uh, lengthy and incredibly passionate opinion explaining the difference between uh, segregation uh, during Jim Crow and the desire to promote integration. On the one hand, he, he talked about these decisions having been made by local de democratic entities, the school boards. Um, and he talked about how important he thinks it is for children to get to know people who are not like them because that's critical to our democracy. Right. His his father, of course, being a, a lawyer on the San Francisco Board of Education. And yeah. He had written a, a lot about how, he, you know, he, he considered Brown v. Board, like many people, to be the court's finest moment, I think were his words. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, he, he had an incredibly powerful commitment to equality and to really trying to see the principles of the Constitution, the principles of equality and liberty and responsive democracy play out in the real world. His, his approach is, you know, in some ways, very, very different from what we see in many ways, very different from the current conservative majority, which takes a very kind of technocratic uh, approach to thinking about the Constitution, they, and one that is not particularly concerned with effects, with what's going to happen in the real world. As a result, they seem uh, willing to significantly uh, overturn lots of former lots of precedent, but also to really constrain the federal government in a lot of different ways. That's not the way Justice Breyer approaches the job. He doesn't think being a judge is about um, that kind of rigidity. He thinks it's about giving giving life to these incredibly important constitutional principles and uh, being always cognizant of how they are playing out in the real world. It's not to say that it's pie in the sky or abstract. Everything he did was really grounded in fact, in records. You know, what, what is the record in front of the court? What is going to happen as a result of this decision? It's very pragmatic, but based on these principles. Right. And I think it's fair to say that, yeah, like you mentioned, the conservative justices, some of them dismiss those considerations as policy considerations or things like that. So let's focus in on, you know, how maybe his role on the court has changed from you know his first years um perhaps when you were clerking for him to to now um in this moment where there's a you know 6 to 3 clear conservative majority 
Well, I'm sure he's would prefer to spend his last term writing majority opinions. And unfortunately, he's probably going to be writing. He already has written and will probably be writing some more dissents. Um, so that's obviously, uh, you know, no justice goes into the job hoping for that. Um, but I think his I think his role is is several fold. One is he is deeply committed to maintaining good relationships with people he doesn't agree with. Again, this goes back to his hopes for democracy. And so I'm confident that he has done everything he can to have warm relationships, keep the lines of communication open, uh, try to find common ground where it's possible. Uh, he really works very hard to try to find common ground. Um, I think that's gotten harder, frankly, with this new majority. Uh, I think, but I think earlier in his career, he he could be, he he was uh, successful at it, and may yet still be successful at it. Uh, sometimes in ways we can't even see. Um, I think also his giving voice to these other perspectives is an incredibly important role. I mean, again, nobody wants to spend their last term writing passionate dissents. Uh, they'd rather write majorities, but he's going to give voice to these principles uh, and explain what he thinks the correct view of the Constitution is, how uh, pr promoting democratic values is central to the project of the country, small d, democratic values. Um, and that has to be done. I mean, that, the, I mean, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and whoever replaces Justice Breyer may all very well, are all writing uh, opinions expressing their perspective uh, on the Constitution and explaining why they think the majority is wrong. But Justice Breyer has this particular uh, focus on democratic participation, encouraging participation, and democratic accountability. Zeroing in on this moment right now, as, as you know, we've been talking the the conservative majority, and you know, Breyer's also faced incredible pressure since Biden won to to step down. Um, to what extent do you think his decision is being influenced by these factors? Well, I don't think that the pressure he's been uh, hearing from the left has been at all fact helpful. If anything, I think it may have made him reluctant to step down, um, certainly as quickly as people hoped he would. Uh, he really deeply believes in the court as a nonpartisan entity. And he thinks its legitimacy depends on being seen that way. So being encouraged to step down by the left so publicly and, and vociferously um, may have, you know, I, I'm not privy to his thinking, but I don't see how that would be persuasive to him. If anything, I could see it making him think, maybe I should stick around a little longer. Having said that, of course, he knows how old he is. He knows that Justice Ginsburg died while she was still on the court. He said that he doesn't want that to happen. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's also well aware of the fact that having a president with whom he has more ideological uh, connection to, or who is likely to appoint a successor who, who has a sort of, who's ideologically aligned with him uh, is important for his legacy. Uh, it otherwise the things that he cares about will become you know even further out of reach and it sounds like we you know may not see the last of justice Breyer at the end of the term not only has he said he'll only step down upon confirmation of his successor but there's every reason to believe that like 
just a suitor, uh, he could potentially sit by designation in, in some of the federal appeals courts. <laughs> do, you, do you think Breyer would be inclined to do something like that? I could totally imagine him doing that. I think he would really enjoy it. Um, yeah, retired justices do sometimes do that. Uh, Justice O'Connor used to do that sometimes. Justice White used to do that. Um, so I, I could imagine him doing that. I also think he will continue to speak publicly. And he actually said in his remarks today how much he likes speaking to students in particular, high school mm-hmm. students, elementary school students, um, even law students. Uh, and I am sure we'll hear him do that. Uh, I think he thinks that you know he has a message about uh, democratic participation, democratic responsiveness that he is not going to give up upon. He's in good health. He's, you know, he's all there and he's passionate about these things. All right. Well, I think that about does it for us, uh, Carolyn, but thanks so much for for coming on the show today and talking about, uh, you know, Justice Breyer's legacy and your time clerking for him. Thank you so much. It was great. It was so nice to talk with Carolyn about the legacy that Breyer will leave behind when he departs from the bench. Um, but I feel like already, you know, the conversation's shifting to who will be his replacement. Um, and joining us now is Law360's Capitol Hill reporter, uh, James Arkin, who is going to kind of talk us through about what we might expect in the coming months with uh, the nomination and confirmation process for a potential Breyer successor. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks. It's good to be here. So, you know, just... Let's let's talk about what's been going on for the last day or two here. You know, how did Capitol Hill react to the news of Breyer's upcoming retirement on Wednesday when it first kind of broke? So I think for for Democrats largely, there was probably a, a collective sigh of relief um, that that Justice Breyer was going to be retiring with President Biden in office and with Democrats in control of the Senate, and then that switched pretty quickly into. Very, very swift pledges uh, from Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and uh, Senator Dick Durbin, the Judiciary Committee chairman, to move quickly uh, to confirm a successor to Justice Breyer. Uh, in fact, those those pledges to move the successor quickly happened before Breyer had even gone to the White House and done the official uh, formal notice of, of his intention to retire. Uh, and so whenever the the nominee comes out, uh, Schumer and Durbin and and other Democrats have already said, we're going to move quickly. Uh, Someone close to Schumer said that they sort of looked at the timeline for Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, which was a little bit less than a month as kind of a model. Uh, It sort of remains to be seen given the the particular difficulties of a 50-50 Senate and an 11-11 Judiciary Committee uh, evenly divided, whether that is, whether that's a a reasonable timeframe. But overall, the reaction was, uh, relief that there's going to be uh, a confirmation process for a successor while Democrats are control of the Senate and plans to move as quickly as they possibly can to get someone in place. I think you just hit on an important distinction between this situation and the situation with Amy Coney Bear, which is, yeah, it's a razor thin margin, right? So what are the ways in which, you know, what, I guess one way to say it is what, what could go wrong for Democrats with such a thin margin? I think that the immediate and obvious thing that could go wrong is any Democratic senator saying that they don't support Biden's pick. Uh, that that is that's it. If a Democratic senator comes out in opposition, uh, that that would end the the confirmation. Essentially, I would be very shocked to see a Democratic senator in opposition and a Republican in support. Um, now, whether or not there are any Republicans in support, that sort of remains an open question based on who the nominee is. 
but that's that really plays into just how precarious things are for Democrats. Uh, they can do this on a party line vote because uh, confirming justices no longer requires a, a filibuster proof majority. But they need every single Democrat to be unified in support of the pick. Now, there are some signs that that's actually probably the likeliest scenario for Democrats. Uh, there's been a, a lot of conversation uh, in the last couple of weeks about what the first year of President Biden's judges looked like at the other federal courts. And there wasn't a single judge that received a no vote from a Democratic senator. Uh, they they were unified in their support of, of his district and circuit court picks. And so that's a sign that there's a lot of unity uh, among the Democratic caucus uh, in terms of what Biden is doing with the courts. And, and so depending on who the nominee is, I think you you can sort of look at the the history there and say that it's likelier than not that they're going to have democratic unity. And at that point, that's all they need. They they need 50 democratic senators to say yes. And then any sort of bipartisan support would just be sort of the icing on top. At 1230 today, President Biden kind of gave remarks on uh, Justice Breyer's retirement, at, at which point he, he confirmed that he would be uh, nominating a black female Supreme Court nominee to replace him, which would obviously be the first in, you know, the court's history. So can we talk a little bit about some of the potential candidates here? Can you give us a survey of who might be in the mix for for this big promotion? Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, as you said, uh, Biden reaffirmed that commitment that he made uh, all the way back in the presidential campaign. And uh, that so that does sort of narrow down the the list of potential nominees uh, and and one interesting thing in this whole process is that in a lot of ways, Biden has himself created the pool of candidates that he's going to be choosing from uh, because he has emphasized nominating black women to circuit courts over the last year. Uh, and some of the, the women who were confirmed by the Senate last year to appeals courts are now considered possible picks for the Supreme Court. So he, he sort of created this pool of potential Supreme Court nominees and then now may end up selecting someone from that. Uh, to to nominate to the Supreme Court, um, but so to get into, I mean, some of the names, the the name that comes up the most often uh, is is uh, Judge uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who was uh, on the D.C. District Court, was nominated to the D.C. Circuit Court last year, and was confirmed by the Senate. Uh, I think fifty three to forty four was the confirmation vote, and and key to that is all fifty Democratic senators, and then also three Republicans: Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski who are sort of the likeliest Republicans to support any any judicial nominee, all, all voted in favor. Uh, and so she is she's seen largely as as one of the likeliest frontrunners, uh, simply because the D.C. Circuit, is, as we all know, is a feeder to the Supreme Court. Uh, she has that appellate experience now, and she just went through the rigors of a, of a Senate confirmation. And senators are familiar with her background, familiar with her record. Uh, in her previous roles. And, and so there's there's just sort of familiarity there. And one interesting note on that is in her Judiciary Committee questionnaire, she she actually noted during that confirmation process that she met with President Biden at the White House uh, before he nominated her, which which is somewhat rare um, for, for circuit courts, but, but shows that there's just a little bit of familiarity there uh, with the president. Um, some of the other nominees, um, there's a, a California Supreme Court Justice, Leandra Kruger, uh, who is, I think, a little bit younger and is considered sort of uh, right up there in the top tier of potential picks with Judge Jackson. Uh, and then there's a, a district court judge, uh, who, who James Shell Childs, who's actually been nominated to the D.C. Circuit uh, and, and is in the process of that nomination now to the court that's considered a feeder court to the Supreme Court. Uh, and she has a big booster in Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, 
who is a, a really close Biden ally and and has been pushing her as a as a potential nominee. And then there there are a couple other uh, judges who uh, Eunice Lee was confirmed at the Second Circuit last year. It's a former public defender. Candace Jackson Akiwumi of the Seventh Circuit was also confirmed last year. Um, so there, there's just a, there's a bunch of picks. Um, you know, folks who who have been through the process recently, and, and senators, and and Senate staff, and all the people who are going to be doing the vetting and doing the confirmation process have a real familiarity with. You know, as as we're talking about the kind of vetting and process, uh, I can't help but think about how, like, of the current sitting justices, Justice Breyer actually had the most yay votes uh, at his confirmation. It was like eighty-seven to nine. It's so obvious his successors is not going to face. Anything kind of like that situation, um, you know, we're, we're talking about how, you know, votes are, are really going to ma- matter here with the candidates. Um, will Biden pri- prioritize bipartisanship? We, we kind of talked about how, you know, if, if all Democrats are, are on one side, that should should work out. But, you know, are there any candidates who might have better chances than others at securing some Republican votes to possibly make it maybe not so much of a razor edge uh kind of margin for 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 a vote. I think it's unlikely that we'd get to the point where it wouldn't be considered sort of a razor thin margin. I certainly the the days of uh unanimous confirmations or 80 plus senators supporting uh, I I think are are gone um and I you know I I think the uh, Judge Jackson's 53 to 44 confirmation to the circuit court is kind of a, a good marker um in those those three Republicans Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham and Lisa Murkowski uh, pretty often, actually, are the only three Republicans who support uh, judicial nominees. There, are, there are some that have gotten much higher uh, support from Republicans, and and there's some Republicans who who have voted for some of Biden's other picks. But I, I think that's a good starting place. Is essentially senators like Murkowski, Collins, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, can can they get to yes uh, on this pick? And so, in that sense, Judge Jackson, I, I think, starts in a pretty solid place, in that they all voted for her a year ago, less than a year ago. Uh, obviously for a different court. And obviously she will go through a more rigorous confirmation hearing and and uh, a more high profile confirmation hearing. And maybe that could change minds. Maybe there could be some differences. I'd be pretty surprised to see any Republican who didn't vote for her for the DC circuit turn around and vote for her for the Supreme Court. Uh, so I, I don't see a situation if she's nominated where she could increase Republican support. But I do think there, there are some scenarios where maybe anywhere from three to five Republicans uh, could be a yes on this. Let's talk about uh, timeline a little bit. So Justice Breyer obviously sent his l- letter of resignation over to the ret- to, to the White House today, in which he kind of used some interesting language, saying that he will retire at the end of the term, you know, assuming that his successor has been nominated and confirmed. So that suggests kind of a different timeline from what we saw when Justice Kennedy stepped down from the court, which was after the court term ended, and then there was a vacancy, and then it went through the kind of nomination process during the summer recess. That does not seem to be on the table right now, right? So give us a sense of what we're going to see over the next weeks and months. I think Democrats are going to move as quickly as they can without overstepping and moving too fast. Um, I mean, Biden said uh, during his remarks that that he was expecting, his it was in his intention. He, he said twice, my intention, which... Uh, you know, that suggests maybe it could slip a little bit, but to nominate uh, someone by the end of February. And so if, if his nomination comes at the end of February, I think Democrats would would want to move pretty quickly to get the process started, get get the nominee meeting with senators, get get the hearing sort of on the schedule. 
I, one thing that's notable, um, just because the the timeline for Amy Coney Barrett was mentioned, um, is that one of the reasons that Joe Manchin did not support uh, Amy Coney Barrett was timeline, was the process and it being so close to the election and it moving so quickly. And so in order to keep unity and especially to keep Manchin and, and Senator Cinema on board, I think Democrats are going to be careful to make sure that the process is, is thorough and, and that it doesn't feel rushed and that it doesn't feel like they're speeding through or skipping steps or anything like that. So I, you know, I, I don't think they're going to move too quickly. But one thing to remember is that the longer a nomination sits out there, the the higher the possibility that something goes wrong. Uh, you know, that something comes up in the vetting, that that some question gets answered, that a meeting with a key senator goes poorly. Just it, it, the longer you wait to have the confirmation vote, the increased chances are that there's something wrong. So I don't think they'll wait until June, until Justice Breyer is actually stepping down. I think the the earliest that it seems like they have the votes to to move this forward and that everyone's on board with the process, that's that's how quickly they'll go. And, and I would expect that to be sometime in, in early to mid spring. I, I, I don't think they'll let this linger any longer than it has to. Or that, you know, from the Democrats perspective, God forbid, they, you know, lose their majority. I mean, it's a one vote chamber. That's what's so crazy about this situation. But that's, that's really interesting to think about. We're going to see this play out over the next uh, several months. And we're going to be keep an eye on your reporting, James. Thanks so much for coming on the show and kind of giving us the breakdown there. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was great to be on. So, Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us today in terms of digging into the whole Briar retirement matter. Um, As always, it's been great talking. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guests, Carolyn Shapiro and James Arkin. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.